The Claire and Eat podcast is independently produced by me, Sean Perrin, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, with the assistance of Megan Taylor, who's our copywriter, and Brian Shaples, who's our audio editor. To support the production of this podcast into the future and get access to an ad-free version at the same time, visit clarineat.com support. The show is made possible by listeners just like you. You're listening to episode 92 of the Clarinet Podcast, with a double-double duo that consists of Cornell Volak on clarinet and Michael Bridge on accordion. There's nothing that's out of bounds when you're doing a transcription in order to serve the purpose of what you're eventually trying to get to musically. Double Double Duo is about much more than coffee. Each duo member is a double threat on two instruments. Cornell Volak plays clarinet and piano, and Michael Bridge accordions and piano. Classically trained international soloists, they use comedy, virtuosity, and musical sensitivity to bring their broad repertoire to life. I had the chance to watch Michael and Cornell perform in Airdrie, Alberta, which is about a 30-minute drive outside the city uh, this past winter. And man, I have to say, it was one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. If they are coming to your city, definitely be sure to check them out. And they've got some tour dates available on their website, doubledoubleduo.com. Also, Cornell wanted me to mention that he is doing a tour upcoming in China here, so you can check out his website at cornellvolak.com. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And also, I want to congratulate Cornell. He was recently accepted to teach clarinet at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Today, we're in for a real treat. Um, I'm going to let uh, Michael and Cornell explain it themselves here, kind of more what's happening in a second, but it's the first time we've had live music ever on the podcast, and we're sort of going to sit in on a sort of rehearsal, discussion, um, arranging session conversation that's not really an interview, but but kind of just uh, interplay between Michael and Cornell and with me kind of diving in with questions here and there. And they actually are going to perform some music and we're going to get to hear something from one of their albums called Rock Bach, which integrates the electronic accordion in a really, really interesting way. Today's episode of the show is brought to you in part by Daddario Woodwinds and their new weekly trivia show called Don't Blow It. You can check it out every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern on Daddario's Instagram channel. And if you know the right answers to the questions, you might even have the chance to win some amazing new gear. Don't forget to check out Daddario's new line of reserve reads at your local music store. It's available for B-flat, E-flat, and bass clarinet now, and you can also purchase online at clarinet.com reads. So we have a really special episode today. Cornell and Michael are going to actually allow us behind the scenes of one of their duo rehearsals and then talk a little bit about what it's like to arrange music for this very unique duo and perform it at such a wonderful high level as they do. So um, thank you so much, guys. And I really look forward to, to what's about to happen here. It's the first live music ever on the podcast, I believe. Wow, it's our privilege. So we're going to share with you just a few of the transcriptions that we're currently working on. We rehearsed this for the first time three, yeah, three days ago yeah. out here at the University of Victoria. And we are working on it. We are choosing octaves, we're choosing stops, registers, we're distributing the parts um, among uh, each other and among my hands, uh, right and left hand of the accordion. So there's a lot of experimentation that goes in. We try it different ways. And then once we have had a, enough time to experiment with different techniques and different uh, ways of playing the piece, then it sort of solidifies. But even after a few months on the road, the piece might change again. So because of all, all of our repertoires, our own arrangements, um, it's very volatile. It's very uh, dynamic. Yeah, I mean and it is subject to constant evolution and change. And uh, we're in the middle of working out a new uh, 
Bach suite that we are transcribing for uh, clarinet and accordion. So you just call us right in the middle of this lovely gig, which we would like to play for your and our listeners right now. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it very much. All right. All right, then. the A section twice, and I think there's more than enough rich material there All right. to, to chat about. Yeah, we've been working on it for the last couple of days because, in fact, we found this amazing uh, arrangement of this suite. Um, this is partita number three, uh, BWV1006. For solo violin. For solo violin. And we found this amazing arrangement of this done by Rachmaninoff. Of the of actually of three movements from this particular partita, and we decided that it is such so beautiful and rich harmonies that we would like to uh, adopt it for our duo. And um, so after quite a few hours by now of working out the voicings and the harmonies and and uh, notes, of course, I got to transpose. Um, for my A clarinet, and uh, where we're so just to say in the original key. Um, and um, maybe talk about why, because you're transposing it anyways, yeah. why did you choose A clarinet instead of B flat clarinet? Well, I've, this is an excellent question. Um, I was debating uh, on what clarinet should I be playing, and um, after, after trying on both uh, instruments uh, without and with accordion, um, my personal personal um, preference goes to the A clarinet because it's got way more resonance. It's um, it's also um, closer in terms of key, right? It's closer in terms of key because actually it puts it into a very idiomatic uh, G major E minor uh, keys on on the instrument, which uh, sound much better on the clarinet. The further down the uh, circle of fifths we go. Um, the less resonant the instrument becomes. I'm talking about clarinet. And so in order to keep it as idiomatic as possible, uh, I chose the A clarinet for two of this reasons. One is the resonance, and the second one is also fingering. So um, that actually how this choice was being made. Right now we are working on a lot of uh, registration for accordion, and uh, we are fighting our battles on this field because... Um, Apparently, accordion is such a rich instrument in, ter in terms of colors and sound that we have a huge palette to choose from. So um, 
we are we are debating on different motifs being played on different reeds and in different registers, and how does it blend with the clarinet? Um, so to give you an example, uh, for instance, let's play. What if I just to just to give maybe the listeners an idea? What if I just play one bar on a few different registers? Yeah. So the the one that I was using is uh, our default because we find that it blends very very well with clarinet in most cases. So that sounds like this. But from that, I could make it a little darker or a little brighter or increasingly bright, or extremely bright. Like, I, I have to find it because I don't use this one, as you can see. Stop that one. <laughs> <laughs> don't use that one. <laughs> so, so, hey guys, before we move on, this you know this thing we're discussing here with the different clarinets, um, as far as the arrangements, this is extremely compelling to me. Why is it that as we go up in the number of sharps or flats on the clarinet, that the instrument um, loses some of the resonance? I think you mentioned. The more we need to alter, meaning sharpen or, or flatten the notes. Um, that means that we are using more keys, obviously, because if we were only to play in G major or F major or C major, we would be using an absolute minimum of, of the keys that the clarinet has. Now, obviously, we want to be free um, to play at any key, but the danger is that even um, with our modern technology, um, not all of the uh, tone hall placements are perfect still. It is the best compromise we can get, but it's not perfect. Um, so basically, if we are using this um, huge amount of, of auxiliary keys, let's say two our three major most idiomatic uh, uh, tonalities, which is G, F, and let's say C, um, the further, the, the more we are using holes of different diameters and of different placements, which basically will directly translate into um, a complicated tone colors. Of course, one can argue with this idea that regardless the key, the clarinet should play very with homogeneous sound and should be very even in all registers. However, it's not always the case. Technically speaking, clarinet has its own idiosyncrasies that every time have to be taken under consideration. So if there is an original key and of some piece that we are transposing, uh, and we want to be as we want to be uh, in that key or as close to that key. So let's say if uh, this is in uh, let's say E minor. Uh, or G major, but uh, mostly in G major, then uh, or E minor, let's say, then you want to be in G minor, you know, to use as few auxiliary keys as possible. Um, so then you pick A clarinet. Then if I were to pick, let's say, the B flat clarinet, I would land in F sharp minor, which, quite frankly, from technical standpoint, like finger-wise, I don't mind. But when I listen to it carefully, carefully, I just see how uneasy it is 
to listen to uh, some some of it. You know, there's just the intervals themselves and and the key just doesn't sound most natural to the B flat clarinet. However, when you look at the Z minor portion and you pull and you and you play it in on A clarinet, you end up in in G minor. Then immediately uh, it falls into this beautiful range of the instrument, and uh, we are ending up using as little, I mean, way, way, way less auxiliary keys than if we were to play it on B flat clarinet. Um, so if these are the artistic choices to be made, I would I would consider this to be one of the criteria. It's interesting because so, so just for students to give a quick summation, I mean, basically what we're saying is that. If you arrange a piece and it has seven sharps, um, not only for technical ease of facility, which is not really a primary concern, but for, for resonance and sound characteristics by using the basic stack of tone holes, you're going to get a better sound. B-flat clarinet would add sharps, but A clarinet would take them away. Yes, in this particular case, that's true. When you play fast articulation on the clarinet, let's say you have running notes, running scales, um, the clarinet by nature will sound uh, and it will feel to the player that um, it is more homogeneous when you are running across as many open holes, obviously, right, um, than when you are throwing in sharps and flats and some sort of auxiliary fingering and, and a lot of resonance fingering, uh, which, by the way, should be present at all times. But if it's too complex, then, then you feel the differences in back pressure on all the single running notes. You know? So uh, this is not to say that we should play all of the pieces in F major, G major, <laughs> and maybe E flat and B flat major. I am definitely uh, against that because that would impoverish our our skills of being great technicians on our instruments. But um, assuming that one has all the necessary skills to be able to play in every key, uh, when the artistic choice is being to be made, uh, it is not to. It would be good to remember about these technicalities. So every little bit like that helps the end result. You know? So we're not saying to pick the most technically easy key. We're saying to pick the most uh, historically accurate and sonically best key for the situation, right? Oh, absolutely. If possible, stick to the original key. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this? So, and, and I got a question for you too in a second, Michael. <laughs> um, but what are your thoughts on this? So let's say that you're, I would personally say um, that the B-flat clarinet generally has a little brighter sound than the A clarinet, of course, right? Um, are there instances where you would consider going to a harder key or a, um, a key with not the ideal number of sharps and flats for the resonance, but you want that darker or brighter tone and you would consider doing that? Well, here is, uh, this is a very, very important question about arranging in general. And um, that basically has to come from uh, the deeper understanding of what we want to accomplish and also what kind of music we are playing. Now, if we're playing Baroque music, let's say, or, or classical music, and we are thinking like clarinetists, then we should remember that in, at the end of 1700s and then at the early 1800s, um, there were so many different clarinets that would play in different keys. They were tuned to different uh, uh, keys. And each of them had different tone color. 
you know. Uh, one of the reasons was that they didn't have the technology to make uh, half as good clarinets back then as we have today that would allow to play in every key. That's one of the reasons. This is Ivan Müller that came up with the idea much, much later. Uh, but nevertheless, there is something to say about this tremendous differences in keys and tuning back then uh, when it was part of the musical rhetorics um, uh, that certain keys would signify certain feelings or certain affects that should not be forgotten. So if you read out of the piece, let's say, that this particular affect is to be presented, then you do everything possible it will, to, to preserve and to highlight that affect. So, and then going from there, I would make the artistic choices regarding the clarinet key and or um, the actual key to which we want to or have to uh, sometimes um, transpose it to. But it has to come first from the deeper understanding of what kind of mood or affect the composer meant. If this was a, a, a funeral type of music or very religious, uh, slow, white notated, you know, piece with white notation, I wouldn't necessarily pick, uh, let's say, I don't know, a screaming short piccolo clarinet, you know, for it, especially if it was written in a lower uh, mid, uh, lower range. Obviously, that asks for something more mellow and, and less dramatic than that. Uh, you know, these are like extreme reasons. Same goes for the opposite. If something was written in a high register and was brisk and, and jumpy, I wouldn't necessarily go with the A clarinet if I didn't absolutely have to. That, that long answer covers <laughs> parts of your question. Yeah, so I think what you're saying is like at the beginning of compositional use of the clarinet, we were confined, composers were confined by the instrument based on the key, but as we've moved forward, they're confined based on the, um, or they can express themselves based on the tonal characteristic. Is that kind of what you're saying? Absolutely. Always follow the affect of the particular piece or particular phrase. So we live in a lucky time, basically. Like music, music like Debussy wrote, for example, very chromatic and whole tone based, um, the Premier Rhapsody I'm talking about, that simply wouldn't have been possible in Mozart's day. Um, it would be possible, however, I think a lot of people would pay not to hear it. Extremely difficult and out of tune, you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Here's one, one thought, though. You just said we live in a lucky time where we can play in any key. Not necessarily, because we have now uh, standardized equal temperament, which did not occur in full mathematically until the 1880s, which is a lot later than most people think. That's when they actually had the math to prove that they had done it. They may well have accomplished it as early as, say, 1830. In order to have equal temperament, that means that we're making the best possible compromise between every key, where any key that you do play in is adjusted for all the other keys that you could be playing in, which means that no single key is actually in tune with itself. I mean the notes within the scale. And so if you go back to pre-equal temperament days, such as when, uh, like this lovely Baroque music, when this was written, it really did mean something to have written it in E major, as opposed to A, as opposed to D, G. It really had not, this is what Cornell's meaning by, I think, a dimension of the affect. That's not just the notes and the tempo. 
of the music, the key that it was in, really had a bearing on how the intervals were sounded. And each key could perhaps have been identified by even a common listener um, more easily than today because E major sounded different than D major, sounded different than G major. Is the accordion now or has it always been a equal temperament instrument or is this adjustable or how does it work? Concert accordions today are tuned equal temperament, uh, just like pianos or, or basically any, um, any, well, actually, I was going to say any harmonic instrument. Uh, I, no, I think that's maybe not true. Guitars might, uh, guitarists might tune themselves based on open strings uh, to have perfect fifths all the way along in the relationship between the strings. But um, yes, accordions are tuned with equal temperament. Uh, I don't know how much experimentation there was in the 1800s with different tuning systems. Uh, I imagine uh, that originally they must have been tuned um, a little bit differently. But actually the, the whole discussion about pure, if I may say, tuning and or temperament on accordion is maybe a slightly more recent phenomenon since I would say the 1950s and 60s when concert accordion has been on the rise and when we have what are called dry tuned accordions as opposed to wet tuned. Dry tuned is what I am playing uh, and that means that all of the reeds that are in the accordion when you play more than one reed at the same time, which I can do by coupling stops. So here's one, here's two, that I'm playing with one finger on one button. Here's all four, so a few octaves in there. The reeds are in tune with themselves. That's what dry tuning means. And I choose a dry tuned accordion because it blends much better with clarinet, uh, particularly for the types of music that we're playing. Wet tuning would be where the reeds are out of tune with themselves. And I, this accordion doesn't have it, but I can give you a sense of what that might sound like. Kind of like a chorus. Uh, they, they call it a chorus effect in audio editing, right? Exactly. Um, just by putting one of my stops on halfway. And this musette or wet sound is what made the accordion versatile in folk ensembles since it produced more than one uh, intonation of the same pitch, it blended all the other instruments together very effectively. <laughs> That's the theory anyways, that because it was all over the map in its own intonation, everything else sounded good if you had accordion there, because anything was permissible. <laughs> so how does it work blending between you two, you two as far as the clarinet and the overtone series? Every note that you hear coming from an accordion is a separate read. This has 430 reeds inside of it. So every time you hear a different note, it's actually a different metal tongue that's vibrating. Whereas it only has one, so Cornell and clarinetists are producing different partials or focusing on different partials of the overtone series depending on the fingering. Yeah, depending on the fingering, but see, depending on the, on the bore, because the clarinet is known for producing the odd harmonics as opposed to the regular harmonics. So we don't, we are going by the 12th and then 6th and so on and so on. While um, 
well, Michael's reads or let's say a, a natural, let's say a division of the string would be to, to an octave fifth and so on and so on. Um, that presents problems on its own. So I have to constantly be aware of the intonation when we're playing. Um, and very often, uh, let, if Michael doubles or triples, uh, uses like two stops, right, or, or three or stops, both hands. or both hands, then very often I, I can get completely thrown off by the intonation because if some of his reads are, that are doubling are slightly off or not perfectly tuned, uh, then I honestly don't know which one I should be tuning to. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this is just um, this is this is just a particularity of of the duo between between uh, an instrument such as accordion and, and the clarinet. So. We're constantly battling um, with with the intonation, meaning like not battling, but having a, a room for improvement. So when we um, use and or look for different registration on the accordion, it is also um, driven by the quality of intonation. So when Michael mentioned that we have a certain uh, setup uh, by default that basically implies that. Um, that the sound he's not using the the top reeds, which uh, let's say when he's using reeds that are like four octaves higher, right, to yeah. to double, um, it is so incredibly difficult to tune to a reed that that is of this uh, very short length, right, um, which could be the overtone of my note that I'm playing on the clarinet, except it isn't. I so what? I don't I don't actually know, but I I wonder if the reason why uh, clarinet works so well with darker sounds on accordion without those high reads is because you only have the are the odd harmonics. Yeah, that's what I'm actually just saying. Yeah. So if you switch off the high reads, I have no re like I don't get thrown off so easy by the intonation because they don't interfere with my higher overtones as much. Um, so sorry, both of you guys, you were about to play something about 15 minutes ago, and then we went on this wonderful conversational diversion that I I'm responsible for. So I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but uh, would you like to play your next excerpt or what you're going to discuss? I'm sure. So what we are working on now is uh, what will be the latest addition to our repertoire. This is the overture to Mozart's opera, The Marriage of Figaro. And it's a wonderfully fast and furious orchestral work, a full orchestra, or Mozart's orchestra. So the, the opening lines that you'll hear are... Uh, meant for violins, which have very different qualities than our instruments, both sonically and in terms of how you physically, how it feels to produce the sound. And then the full orchestra comes in uh, slightly later. And so basically now, instead of just playing a solo piece like the Bach, now we're trying to get the effect of an entire orchestra.
this is one of our latest addition to uh, additions to our rep, which was it is still under development. Um, this is why uh, we still are not quite sure about some parts of it, how it should be or will be orchestrated. Sometimes it just depends on the room we are in. Sometimes and often actually depends on the tempo we are taking it in. Um, often depends on articulation um, that we are trying to um, put into it. So, Michael, tell me, because you are the the part of this arrangement that causes the most trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell us about what you are battling with here? I, I, I It would be insane to actually sh be able to show uh, the the audiences that, that are going to be listening to this, the, the colors and notes and pages of stuff that I've done and we've changed on this arrangement. I think this is maybe the most notation on a page I've ever done. It looks like a, a map of some mega metropolitan city or something, it's you a, know, with a lot of streets and, <laughs> and rivers going through it and it's colors. A secret treasure map. So, <laughs> so I started from a piano score um, for this, and Cornell started from uh, basically the first violin yeah. part. But we added a whole bunch of extras for him. So he's yeah. the first violin plus. So my, my part uh, includes parts of the first violin, first, sometimes second, sometimes viola, sometimes cello, often uh, flutes. Yeah. You know? And occasionally a clarinet line. <laughs> to sweeten the deal. <laughs> but, yeah. but in fact, I, actually, if we go through in detail, I bet I have more clarinet lines than you do. Because I, I'm you're sure on you do. top mostly. So. I'm sure you do. <laughs> Right. So, um, for instance, the orchestration here is is it's going from tutti to duos to trios or to um, accompanied, you know, soli, and uh, and this actually calls for different um, registration and also uh, choosing very often between the bellow shakes and actually broken arpeggios, right? Yeah. This this makes huge difference in terms of dynamics and uh, and overall sound. So this piece has a constant flow. To reuse the word from earlier, the affect of this piece has uh, just this energy. Remember, it's an opera overture, and it's going to be uh, an extremely uh, <laughs> ridiculous in some ways opera. Um, with lots of jokes, lots of humor, lots of rapid plot twists. And that's what this overture is forecasting. So there should be a lot of surprises and excitement. Exactly. So whether or not, for instance, I'll show you basically my three choices. When there are repeated notes that need to happen in order to sustain this energy rather than just, you know, holding the long note while Cornell is doing some gymnastics. I would usually choose to either repeat it with my fingers, articulating with the fingers, or I might choose to do it in an octave, or I could do the same thing full part. There are many ways that can be used. The other option, though, is this bellow shake technique, where I actually stop moving my hands, I keep them pushing the buttons down on the keyboard, and I articulate the notes using changes in the bellows direction. And that sounds like this. That gives out a vibe of a tutti, 
you know, yeah. more of a tutti feeling of the orchestra. Even I can even stretch my imagination to say that I can hear timpanis in there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, to juxtapose that with the Alberti bass, yes, just to imitate uh, a string section with, only with this kind of thing. <laughs> Or, ta -da, ta -da, or, or uh, yeah, there are a few other sections. Now, could you do it with bellow shakes? Yes. So, as opposed to this. actually immediately brings uh, two different contrasting orchestration styles, right, between tutti and particular section. And then depending what I'm playing, you can imagine whether this is a woodwind section playing with some strings underneath or if it's just a string quintet um, having their show-off moment or is it a solo instrument with strings or solo, um, let's say, you know, instrument with, with um, the full orchestra. So... This is um, these are battles that we are fighting, trying to find the most appropriate registration. Now, let's maybe do you have any questions? Because we'll like to run, run it again with with uh, our listeners to paying uh, closer attention to uh, the second version that we are trying to put out now. Yeah, let's, let's hear the second version. Okay, we're we're gonna go fast now. Yeah, fast and furious. <laughs> so transcription. We uh, we originally had tons and tons of notes, particularly for me. And uh, yesterday, actually, we tried it. With about half as many notes, I just left a bunch of things out so that we could play it at light speed. And we realized this was actually great because then this really captured the mood of the piece. Absolutely. So as Cornell said earlier, there's nothing that's out of bounds when you're doing a transcription in order to serve the purpose of what you're eventually trying to get to musically. Yeah. So let's see how this works. Let's right? see. <laughs> <laughs> how far can we get? Th this is what you don't get at a live concert. No. <laughs> let's just see it, how fast we can go before it goes off the rails. Yeah, exactly. On the recording. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. By the way, this, this never happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thank you. 
this is way more exciting, but uh, immediately the level of difficulty uh, <laughs> skyrockets, you know, uh, even by moving the tempo or a few notches up. And by level of difficulty, I don't mean just technical difficulty. Uh, it's just choosing what stays in and what should be left out. Because let's say at, at a higher speed, not everything gets the same importance. You see, so we have to we have to really make these choices. What's going to to go to be left out, but we still get the same mood of the piece, right? The same flow. So this is what gets very difficult, artistically speaking. We think in this case, we start to think as a conductor would by deciding what needs to be emphasized. So if I leave a bunch of notes out, or if Cornell changes an octave, or if he plays long notes rather than it emphasizes different lines. So, I mean, by the time that we finish this arrangement, we hope that our actual technical limitations of us as players will not be a factor, but we want to bring alive this piece in the minds of the audience and make them notice the changes when it's just a single instrument, when it's an exciting tutti. Absolutely. And when, it, when, it, when they feel on the edge of their seat and then when we get to one of these more relaxed sections where... This is one of the points of relaxation of the piece. Yeah. Which are the only points that I... <laughs> That I'm not thinking about double tonguing or side-to-side <laughs> -side staccato, uh, which which I must use for the high register uh, at the moment to various degree of accuracy. Uh, but it is uh, under development, and at least now I know that I must use it there in order to have it come out uh, with the limitation, my personal limitations as a player of my single tonguing in the high register, I have to substitute it with something that actually works. And uh, double tonguing and side-to-side -side articulation uh, tonguing is, uh, as we were talking and describing uh, in the previous episode, as, as um, many of our listeners can remember and refer to, um, they are the solutions that I have to throw into here, you know, in order to make it work and to follow the accordion and then to compromise our original artistic choice, if the choice were to be to play it in such tempo, right? So. That's some really amazing insight into how you guys work on these sort of things. I mean, again, I'm drawn back to my my project that I did a couple of years ago, and and um, I remember one of the limitations I had is, you know, Chick Corea when he plays piano pieces, has 10 fingers to work with, and he's doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And, and when we tried to reduce this to marimba and clarinet, there was just some pieces that weren't working. And I would have loved to think about some of those things you just talked about more deeply and maybe apply them to future arrangements of some of the rest of them. <laughs> I see. I can, I, I understand very well what, you, what you're saying. Um, on that note, yet no, no longer than yesterday, I had a student who came in um, who is bored with uh, regular etudes or studies or, you know, technical uh, stuff. And he uh, asked if he could go to one of our jazz faculty here at uh, University of Victoria and, and get further advice on what jazz studies he could get. So I said, oh, by all means, if you only want, if that's your only problem and you're still going to practice, by all means, go and, <laughs> and get <laughs> a new set of jazz studies. 
knowing at the back of my mind that they won't be easy. Uh, so he comes back yesterday with this new book of um, transposed, uh, transcribed Charlie Parker's solos. Yeah. And guess what? Guess, guess what happens? <laughs> he comes in and he he puts it on the stand, and his clarinet is not out. And I'm thinking, oh, I, what are you going to do? Are you going to sing <laughs> it? You know? And then the guy and the student goes to me, "Well, I was hoping you could sight read them for me, so I know how they sound." Oh. <laughs> so, and then you know, I said, "Oh, wow, okay. In that case, let me." I, I burned through some of those, and. I noticed something. Um, they simply don't work without a harmonic instrument, whether a piano or guitar, and bass, and rhythm without song. rhythm section. So I was really surprised as I was playing to them. I'm like, oh wow, you really need the harmonic context in order for this to make any sense. So for someone like my student, who still needs to develop technical uh, uh, abilities, the fact that there was no harmonic context basically uh, puts this, compromises the, the validity of this book for him because it's just boring. It's all technique or it's all really unpredictable harm, harmonies. You know, unpredictable in the sense that if you don't have someone to fill them, then it becomes literally very difficult to digest. So I thought somebody did a really poor job on uh, on transcribing this because for technical, you know, for practicing purposes, it's very important to have some sort of melody there. You know, that is equally, especially if it's if it's transposed for transcribed for a, a solo instrument just for your practical, you know, for your practice. So you really need to have some sort of solo going on there, and uh, that you can hold on to, and then to understand how how the improvisation deviates from that. But this is another set of problems that um, having transpositions or transcriptions of jazz music can present you with. So uh, he said to me, "Wow." Um, out of these 15 different solos, there's only one that has some sort of, makes some sort of sense to me. I'm thinking, yes, exactly. This is why I shouldn't be doing it. So why don't you just get yourself a similar book, but with uh, transcriptions of Louis Armstrong solos, you know, <laughs> because that would be way more digestible. But I understand when you are doing Chick Corea stuff uh, and it's jazz, trying to redistribute that between any other than the original uh, set setup, which is the, the piano probably with bass, um, is going to present you with incredible set of problems there yeah. to solve. Yeah, this particular album was actually um, just solo piano. So lucky in that sense, because a lot of them lent themselves really well to marimba and clarinet. You know, the melodic line is generally taken over by the clarinet. And there's some nice interplay that can happen. But there was some stuff that just like, it was hard to imagine a solution. <laughs> I think that this would really help. And so, of course, we talked a lot just now about, you know, some classical and kind of Baroque technical arrangement um, uh, challenges and, and sort of opportunities. But of course, uh, in the modern day, we also have access to electronic accordion um, type instruments, which you can which you can play with as well. So let's also talk a little bit about what it might be like writing or transcribing or performing with the electronic um, version of the accordion. Absolutely. This is where some of our most radical experimentation has taken place. <laughs> we did the, our first album a couple of years ago was called Rock 
Bach. And we named, we renamed the first movement of Cello Suite Number no. 1 in G major, uh, Rock Bach, because we, we deviated so far from the truth once we got going on this, on this transcription. <laughs> And, and sorry, is this rock as in Rachmaninoff or is in rock music? No, yeah. in this case, it's in rock. R-O-C-K. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically the, the premise for that arrangement, um, which I would hope that you would play for our listeners from our latest um, album, our previous album, sorry, um, was that I wasn't able to compromise the original part too much if at all. In fact, Cornell just basically plays the cello suite. I'm just playing the cello suite as it is. However, the entire um, <laughs> experimentation and, and innovation um, went into uh, using uh, Michael's electric accordion that has hundreds of, of sound options and so on. Um, so whatever you hear is not pre-recorded. Um, it's all happening live. It's actually the instrument has been pre-programmed by Michael, uh, and uh, we play a few pieces uh, using using amplified clarinet during our recitals, w together with the electric accordion. Could you just brief yeah. us on this uh, strange instrument that has to be plugged into the out power outlet? <laughs> yes, it's, it has a battery <laughs> in the back, and it's. Uh, it is much lighter, but it's it's all digital. There's only a computer and some speakers inside here. No reads at all. Uh, so, of course, I can have accordion sounds, but if we want accordion sounds, usually we go for the acoustic instrument. So we use this for everything else. So I can play uh, with the, let's start on the left hand. Here's some just bass notes that are there. Now, if I start to strike harder with my fingers, you can start to get some drums as well. So it, you can relatively easy, easily do uh, something like this. For those who can't see what you're doing, um, I imagine they just envisioned a drummer and bass player just jumped into the room there. Um, are you playing all those like beats and, and drum rhythms as well as the chords. That's not like a pre-recorded backing track in a rock style. That's that's you. that's all done live. And this is the only instrument of its kind that I know of that can. Act. No, I'm just going to say it's the only instrument that can do this. Wow, that's amazing. So like, again, so if I was watching this live and I had my eyes closed, I would honestly imagine at least four people on stage. <laughs> As I said, you can have any sound you want. So yes, I do the rock band, uh, but we we actually start this arrangement with uh, with some organ because uh, because we it's, could. It's it's sort of uh, maybe appropriate to introduce Bach in a slightly more conservative way. First of all, yes, we thought that this will go with the affect of the overall prelude from the first cello suite, right? Cornell, I don't know if we can use the word affect anymore for this. <laughs> well, the affect takes a new, a modern meaning at yeah. this point. And uh, this was this was our absolutely, um, uh, whatever, crazy addition, addition to it. However, um, this will be this will be the piece that we will we will greet uh, you, Sean, and our audience uh, goodbye today. 
however, before that happens, I would like to just say, instead of what the instrument can do, I would like to say what it allows us to do as duo. It allows us to radically expand our repertoire and venture into genres that... Jazz, rock, world yes, music. Absolutely, folk um, and electronic music and whatnot, which would be way more difficult, hence not impossible, to do on acoustic instruments. Just don't get me wrong that we are seeing, you know, limitations of acoustic instruments um, and therefore we are just replacing them with gadgets. No, 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 nothing further from the truth. Uh, instead, we're just trying to, to engage our audiences on a different level and sneak into our programs things that would be um, captivating um, uh, in a different way, meaning like if you have a, a, little, a slight touch of, of amplified instruments within uh, acoustic instrument recital, then you end up grabbing people very suddenly with something new and therefore extending their attention span. Um, especially that goes for younger audiences, you know, um, and school shows that we do a lot and so, and so on. But it also allows us to get out of our system a little bit of <laughs> stamina and, and uh, play some crazy, crazy music that was not originally, not remotely originally uh, meant for our instrument. So before you do this, I just have another question. Do you guys take requests for arrangements? Would you consider some... Other like what? What kind of bands are you looking into arranging, or like jazz artists, or things like that? I mean, how about uh, Sean? How about uh, clarinet as a call for proposals? Double double duo, huh? In terms Absolutely. of arrangements, huh? We've done Bach, Mozart, Chopin, Lutoslavsky. Then we've done some modern rock pieces, some jazz. Benny Goodman. We've been there. Yeah, uh, we have done uh, Gershwin. Gershwin. We've done folk music. We've done Bulgarian, also South Bulgarian, American. South, yeah, we've done country. We did a Hank Williams song. So, if there's a, if it's out there, we can. We'll probably be able to say something about it. So. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. I'm going to send you guys a couple of links. I, I'd love to hear a version of two songs in particular. Like one of them. I don't know if you know this band, but they're called Yes, and they're like a progressive rock, like almost like orchestral blending. But there's a song called like Starship Trooper, which would just be amazing. And, uh, of course, Radiohead Paranoid Android would be really cool with this arrangement. When I am king, you will be fast against the wall. Both of those would work well. Anyways, yeah, you heard that. They're, they're letting us give a call to... Um, arrange something. So again, feedback at clarinet.com, send me an email and I'll pass your requests along to the Double Double Duo and we might even see a unique clarinet arrangement and uh, that would be really cool. <laughs> right. uh, we will take uh, top two or top three that are the most far out 
requests, you know, that they can be from any genre, really. You know, we will do our best and we will be very vulnerable, open to uh, all kinds of uh, uh, comments and uh, criticism, but we will definitely do our best for our listeners. So everyone, not to be biased, but everyone send in a request for Starship Trooper by yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's, let's hear this last piece. I'm really excited. So thank you so much for coming on today, guys. That was just excellent. I think this is a really uh, was a really creative idea for an episode. So thank you, uh, Cornell, for getting in touch, and and thank you, Michael, to uh, joining us on the Clarinet Podcast. Here, you probably have more reads than any other clarinetist, so you're definitely welcome. <laughs> Absolutely, we would like to extend our 
our thanks to to uh, Clarinet and to uh, to you, Sean. Thank you to everyone for following us uh, on uh, social media um, after um, our first podcast, which was fantastic. And thanks for having us again. And uh, not to be biased, but I would like to stress the importance of being able to do as much as possible on one read rather than on 400 <laughs> of them. <laughs> Yeah, but with the digital accordion, I'm using no reads. Whoa, stop. <laughs> okay, I have no read. No I'm read back less. Read less. <laughs> I have no return to this one anyway. So um, thanks a lot again, and and hope to uh, to have um, you know another encounter at some point in the future. Absolutely. That was so great. And don't forget to head back and listen to Cornell's other episode regarding mostly articulation techniques, but we did discuss a few other things. Um, and there'll be a link to that in the show notes. So thank you so much for joining me today, guys, and uh, have a safe drive up northern Vancouver Island this afternoon. Thank you very much. All the best to you and all the best to our listeners. Bye bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Detailed show notes for today's episode can be found at clarinet.com slash 92. If this was your first time tuning into the show, first of all, welcome. I hope that you did enjoy it. And if you're a seasoned listener, I want to thank you for sticking around for all these episodes. As I mentioned last time, we're approaching episode 100, and I would kind of like to do a listener celebration. What that means is send in your thoughts on the podcast, what you loved, what you learned, um, what your favorite guest was, maybe requests for the future, some sort of feedback. That'd be great. You can do that. You've got 90 seconds to leave me a voicemail at clarinet.com slash voicemail, or you can send me an email that I'll read on the show at feedback at clarinet.com. The show is brought to you in part by listeners just like you through their support on Patreon, which is a way to donate a small amount monthly to a creator that you enjoy their content so they can continue to create it into the future. You can support Clarinet at www.clarinet.com support. The show is also brought to you by our season sponsor, Dario Woodwinds. Be sure to check out their Instagram channel and their new Don't Blow It show, which airs every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Don't forget also to check out their new line of reserve clarinet reads, which are available for E-flat, B-flat, and bass clarinet. I want to thank Megan Taylor, who's our copywriter for the podcast. Definitely be sure to check out the show notes page. She's doing a great job. There's links to all the stuff we talked about in today's episode and to purchase things like books and that, which are mentioned on the show. Um, also to Brian Shaples, who did a fantastic job, particularly on this episode. It was quite complicated with the music and uh, really, really amazed with what he had managed to pull off here. Great work. And uh, also, you know, Michael Lonestern deserves some thanks here because he's been providing the music for the beginning and end of the podcast for almost 50 episodes episodes now. So uh, thank you so much, Michael. You can check out his website at earspasm.com. I'm your host, Sean Perrin, signing off from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I look forward to seeing you next time for more of what's new and neat for clarinet on the Clarinet Podcast.